Please join me in this call to worship as we prepare our hearts to encounter the living God in this Good Friday service. Lord Jesus, you carried our sins in your body on the tree so that we might have life. May we and all who remember this day find new life in you now and in the world to come, where you live and reign with the Father and of the Holy Spirit, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you have shown your love in this, that while we were still sinners, you died for us. In the work of Jesus Christ, we who were once your enemies are now welcomed into your presence. We who were aliens and strangers are now brought into your family, knowing your love, adopted as your children. Lord, we have tremendous need. We have need for forgiveness of our good works and our sin against you. We have not loved you with all our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. We have not trusted you and hoped solely in you. Lord, we have not loved our neighbors ourselves. As we worship you this morning, we ask that your Holy Spirit would ambush us, that you'd open the eyes of our heart to the love that you've shown through the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our first scripture reading today comes from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that has brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to our own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all.
Jesus in the Garden, John 18, 1-11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?
John 18, verses 12 through 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. <laughs>
reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 18, verse 28, through chapter 19, verse 16. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priest have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. 
From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Jesus goes to Calvary. John chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with two others, one on either side, Jesus in between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written.
Jesus is crucified. John 19, 23 through 25. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each shoulder, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. John 19, verses 25 to 30. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, 
I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed down his head and gave up his spirit.
Over the last few months, we've been studying the book of Isaiah as God's promise for restoration. First, it's about the restoration of the people of Israel in the historic crisis of exile in Babylon. But we also know that it's about the restoration of the world through God's promised Messiah as the prophet looks beyond the horizon of his own history to the restoration of our broken world and fallen humanity. As we've studied the book of Isaiah over these last few months, especially in these last few weeks of this pandemic crisis, it's important that we look toward the Word of God for comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, says the prophet. But today on Good Friday, we also need to understand that the comfort offered by God's Word is given to us within the context of God's truth. And the necessary, if not difficult, part of God's truth is God's judgment. We've read words of courage and awakening, but embedded in the book of Isaiah is another deep-running theme. While the book of Isaiah is a book about restoration, it understands deeply that part of the restoration process is God's judgment. Isaiah 51.5 says, My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. What does judgment have to do with comfort? As we've studied Isaiah, We've given most of our time recently to studying God's words of comfort and courage and restoration, but the prophecy is not only Isaiah's delivery of God's promises. It's also God's bold unmasking of Israel's sin. As is so often the case, the richer that Israel got, the more decadent it got. When worldly success is at its highest, it seems that the need for God is at its lowest, and contempt for God is at its strongest. The people rebelled against God, and they abused, oppressed, and neglected one another. They abused God's gifts. They took Him for granted. They said that religion didn't have anything to do with politics or economics or business. They spurned their calling to be an example of light and truth and compassion and holiness to the nations, and instead became just as corrupt as the rest. They had compartmentalized God, and so God exposed them. The destruction of Jerusalem, the burning of the temple, and the exile of the people were a national calamity. The crucifixion was a human and eternal calamity. Just as the exile was God's justice for Israel, so Jesus Christ's death on the cross was God's judgment on humanity. The difference? Instead of everyone suffering for the sins of the nation and for their own sin, one man suffered for all people. What does it mean to be under judgment? It means that God is exposing the brokenness in us, in our lives, in our world, and in our systems, and He's forcing us to face them. Just before Jesus was crucified, Jesus said this, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death He was going to die. Jesus had come into Jerusalem with the crowds acclaiming him as their king. But was he really their king? Did they really consider him their king, their lord and sovereign, their rightful authority over their lives? Of course not. They didn't know who he really was. They didn't know how or why they really needed him. They didn't know or understand what he had to do. And so they called him king, but they didn't really believe it or mean it. He was just the celebrity of the moment. He was not really their king. The point is that they did not understand that he was there to fulfill God's plan of restoration, not just for Israel, but for the whole world, and not just the part about restoration, but the part about judgment as well. 
because as Isaiah shows us, the death of the Messiah is God's judgment on the state of this world. The cross was not exposure and punishment for the sins of Jesus. It was exposure and punishment for our sin. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, singular, will die for our, plural, sin. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, Jesus hung exposed. The cruelty, depravity, indifference, and injustice exposed for all to see. The cross was a spectacle. The Romans had many ways to execute a prisoner, and crucifixion was used when they wanted to make an example of someone for all the world to see. It wasn't just gruesome, it was a very public way to die. People were meant to see it as a means of terror and propaganda. It was meant to terrify the people into submission. It was a statement. But where the Romans and the religious leaders meant it to be a statement on their own authority and power, God used it as a statement to expose the depth of human evil, their own evil, sin, and depravity. People often ask, why did Jesus have to suffer so? Why death? Why humiliation? Why of always to die the cross? Why does it have to be so hard and so painful? The cross was grotesque because our sin is grotesque. Sin is violent, selfish, and dehumanizing. We tend to rationalize it away by saying, hey, nobody's perfect. Sure, I've got my faults, but I'm not as bad as some people. But as John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. To say that sin isn't serious is to say that people who get hurt don't matter. If a murderer, a rapist, or a thief is not brought to justice, then we're effectively saying to the victim of his or, or, his or her family, you don't matter. Your daughter, son, husband, wife, friend doesn't matter. Your pain doesn't matter. Your broken life doesn't matter. Your stolen dreams and future don't matter. And to say that sinning against God is no big deal is to say that God doesn't matter. When we spit on God's name or hoard his gifts, ignore his authority, abuse his patience or take his love for granted, when we question his existence or manipulate his religion when it suits us, and then live our lives with a sense of entitlement instead of gratitude, and then say that sin is not a big deal, then we mock his holiness. But if we pay attention to this story, we don't just see the cross. To see the whole picture of God's judgment, we have to pull the camera back and take a look at the whole scene. We have to pull it back far enough to see the soldiers gambling, the crowds jeering, religious people mocking, the spectators ogling, the political leaders oppressing. Christ's ruin shows us the result of our sin, the callousness of the soldiers, the injustice of the government of Pilate and Herod, the envy and jealousy of the religious leaders, the cruelty, blame, and denial of the mob, the cowardice of the disciples, and the betrayal of Judas. When we see Jesus hanging on the cross, we get a clear vision of the worst in ourselves because it shows us what we have done to each other and what we are doing to God through our sin. Can you imagine if a photographer followed you around all day long, every day of your life, taking a picture every time you sinned, every time you were hurtful, every time you were selfish, every time you were mean or cruel 
or indifferent to someone else. And then he put those pictures into a collage and showed them to everyone, showed that collage to everyone. Well, in some ways, that is what Jesus on the cross represents, a collage, a collection, a representation, not only of my sin or your sin, but the sins of the entire human race, all displayed there for everyone to see. And yet, in our selfishness, we do not even see what he has done for us. We cannot even see past our own self-interest. To quote the high priest Caiaphas, he said, it's better that one man should die than the whole nation. In other words, better him than me, better them than we. That's the callousness that we all share, that we all exercise. And the cross exposes the cruelty of that callousness, the cruelty of that indifference and apathy we have toward one another. It exposes the cruelty of man's inhumanity to man. The cross was God's judgment on the state of humanity. The cross shows us the horror and the corruption of human sin, but it also shows us the love of God, that this is how far God is willing to go for us. The cross shows us how far man has fallen, and yet it also shows us how far God is willing to go to save us. We can't forget Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That prayer was not just for the soldiers at the foot of the cross, but for all who were involved and all who witnessed his crucifixion. But it also includes all of us. As a matter of fact, that was the point of the whole spectacle, that he would suffer for our sins so that God would pardon us. Until we take sin seriously, we cannot take grace seriously. And unless we understand that our sin is real and dangerous, we will never understand that grace is amazing. There's no transformation without judgment on the past. And there is no real change without critical evaluation. When your doctor tells you that you have to change your lifestyle because your numbers don't look good, we have to take that seriously and not consider it an act of hate or brutality, but rather an act of truth. Judgment is ultimately the call for change. The cross exposed the grotesque depth of human sin. And this crisis is exposing the brokenness of our systems. It's exposing what is wrong, and it's exposing how many people have been left vulnerable in these precarious situations. Whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not, whether we like it or not, sin is real and it affects everyone. It's like gravity. It's got a hold on everyone. We only have to read a history book or a newspaper to see that sin is alive and well in the world. I mean, who would dare to disagree that sin is real and that its reach is broad? Is there anyone among us that can honestly say that we've not acted selfishly at the expense of others? Is there anyone among us who can honestly say that we've never taken advantage of someone else? Is there anyone among us who can honestly say that we've never rebelled against God or that we've taken him seriously every day of our lives and given God the honor and respect he deserves. The judgment of human sin on the cross exposes the vulnerability, the poverty, and the injustice and abuse that we just take for granted every day in this world. God takes sin seriously because sin is a terminal condition. Paul wrote that the wages of sin is death. It affects our lives in real time, the way we live, the way we relate to each other, and it affects our lives eternally. But it's like high blood pressure 
and people usually don't take it seriously until they have some kind of major episode. Judgment calls us out. The cross is calling us out. And this crisis is calling us out. To be sure, this pandemic is challenging people to great courage. It's challenging them to great compassion and faith. But at the same time, the pressure is squeezing the sin out of us, exposing our anxieties, exposing our selfishness and our indifference to the vulnerability of others. Now is the judgment of this world as Good Friday and COVID-19 collide. What sin is this crisis exposing in you? As you listen to the story of Good Friday, who are you in this story? What is the cross exposing in you? Maybe cruelty or indifference, your fear, your willingness to go along with the crowd, your jealousy, your envy, your dishonesty, your betrayal or your denial of Jesus. You know, where am I in this story? Am I like Judas betraying Jesus, trying to exploit my relationship or manipulate him, using him for my purposes? Am I like Peter, denying Jesus, abandoning him when it's risky or unpopular to be associated with him? Am I like the religious leaders, jealous of him or angry that he claims authority in my life, that he tells me what to do, what to value, and what to believe? Am I like the crowd, cheering for him one moment and then yelling, crucify him, in the next? Am I like the Romans and Herod, indifferent to him, callous to the pain or grief that I cause him because as far as I'm concerned, he is beneath me. He doesn't matter. He doesn't have any power over me. Even if he is real, he's just not a person of importance. Where are you in this story? The other day, someone asked me, are we under God's judgment right now? That depends. Is there still sin in the world? How does God feel about the sin that we take so casually, from personal acts of immorality to public acts of injustice? Is there still sin in the world? Is there still sin in your life, in my life? What does it mean to be under judgment? It means that God is exposing the brokenness of our world and systems and forcing us to face them. But that is the price of transformation. It's going to take more than social distancing and medicine to change the human heart. Our attitudes may change during this season, and we may stay changed for a while, but unless the Lord is changing our hearts, we're going to slide back. We're going to revert. We need a radical transformation, the kind of transformation that only Jesus can bring. Unfortunately, so much of our corporate life is oriented from Sunday to Sunday, and we tend to leap from Palm Sunday with Jesus entering the city in triumph to shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna. And then we jump straight to Easter Sunday declaring, He is risen. And in the meantime, we tend to skip over the hard stories of His betrayal, arrest, denial, suffering, and crucifixion. Yes, we want to get to the celebration of the resurrection. We want to celebrate Easter Sunday. But we can't do that without the agony of Good Friday. There is no resurrection without death. There is no Easter without Good Friday. The reunion does not happen without the quarantine. The restoration does not happen without the judgment. Forgiveness does not happen without atonement. And new life does not take shape without repentance. We have to remember that Holy Week is not simply about comfort. It's also about repentance. 
Repentance means turning around from the ugliness that God has exposed and turning toward His truth and His grace and His way. Jesus stepped onto the scene calling people to repentance. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now is the judgment of this world. And on Good Friday, God was calling us to see our sin heaped on the body of His Son on the cross. He is exposing our sin by the death of His Son. And now Christ is calling us to turn away from that sin toward the face of His Father and to follow Him. Please join me in this prayer of confession and petition from The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions. Holy Lord, I have sinned times without number and been guilty of pride and unbelief, of failure to find thy mind in thy word, of neglect to seek thee in my daily life. My transgressions and shortcomings present me with a list of accusations, but I bless thee that they will not stand against me, for all have been laid on Christ. Go on to subdue my corruptions, and grant me grace to live above them. Let not the passions of the flesh nor lustings of the mind bring my spirit into subjection, but do thou rule over me in liberty and power. I thank thee that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed from lusts and have been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and have been given a wilderness. Go on with thy patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. Purge me from every false desire, every base aspiration, everything contrary to thy rule. I thank thee for thy wisdom and thy love, for all the acts of discipline to which I am subject, for sometimes putting me into the furnace to refine my gold and remove my dross. No trial is so hard to bear as a sense of sin. If thou shouldest give me choice to live in pleasure and keep my sins, or to have them burnt away with trial, Give me sanctified affliction. Deliver me from every evil habit, every accretion of former sins, everything that dims the brightness of thy grace in me, everything that prevents me taking delight in thee. Then I shall bless thee, God of Israel, for helping me to be upright. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, my Savior, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, 
who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Our confession of faith comes from the Declaration of Faith. We believe that in the death of Jesus on the cross, God achieved and demonstrated once for all the costly forgiveness of our sins. Jesus Christ is the reconciler between God and the world. 
He acted on behalf of sinners as one of us, fulfilling the obedience God demands of us, accepting God's condemnation of our sinfulness. In his lonely agony on the cross, Jesus felt forsaken by God and thus experienced hell itself for us. Yet the Son was never more in accord with the Father's will. He was acting on behalf of God, manifesting the Father's love that takes on itself the loneliness, pain, and death that result from our waywardness. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not holding our sins against us. Each of us beholds on the cross the Savior who died in our place, so that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him. In him is our only hope of salvation.